Before we start, in this episode, we make mention of suicide in the context of assisted dying. If this raises issues for you, please contact Lifeline on 13114. On the 28th of November 2023, new voluntary assisted dying laws came into place in New South Wales. We are the last state to have introduced voluntary assisted dying legislation, which is commonly referred to as VAD. So what do these laws mean for those who are terminally ill, their families and their doctors? We're going to explore this a little bit more in this episode. Hi, I'm Catherine Henry, and I'm so glad you can join me on the Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers podcast. Today, we're talking about voluntary assisted dying. These laws came into place on Tuesday, the 28th of November, 2023. We're talking here about helping to end somebody's life. And even though the person may be in the final stages of a terminal illness, the process is still fraught with emotion. And these conversations are not easy ones. So let's look at how this legislation will work with someone who has been following this closely and who also works with many people who are towards the end stage of life. Hunter-based senior geriatrician, Dr. John Ward. Dr. Ward is a founding member of the Hunter Ageing Alliance, as am I, and he has very recently just been named New South Wales Senior Australian of the Year 2024. John Ward, welcome and big congratulations. Thank you, Catherine. So, John, you've been involved in aged care and geriatric medicine since the 1980s. Can you tell us how important this new VAD legislation will be regarding providing the best care for terminally ill people? Well, I think it's going to be important for a small group of people. I don't think it's a huge number, um, but those people who are at the end stages of an unpleasant disease, many of whom, of course, will be young with cancer or neurodegenerative disease, but some of them will be older, and they will want to finish their life at a stage when they feel they're losing dignity, when they can no longer communicate, uh, when they're incontinent, um, when they're having to be moved entirely by other people, and they feel this is not the way they wanted to in their life. The other group for whom it will be important are those men who at the moment are committing suicide. Now, one of the things which is not really known in our community is that the higher, highest incidence of suicide, now if I can just explain the difference between incidence and prevalence, if you're looking at the total numbers in the community, the highest prevalence of suicide is younger men, but the highest incidence of suicide, that's the number per thousand in the population, is actually older men. And they're killing themselves because their quality of life has become so poor. It's because their spouses died, they've got no friends, they're losing their vision, their hearing, um, they're becoming incontinent, they're losing their mobility. They don't wish to go into residential aged care. And they certainly don't wish to go into residential aged care. Now, many of those will have a, a terminal illness or several terminal illnesses that you could argue will bring their life to an end within 12 months or six months. And so they will be another group who will want to access this. Whether they'll use it or not is another matter. And that's the way I think a large number of people will use this legislation is not necessarily to carry through it, 
but just to have it there as a an insurance policy, as a comforting sort of strategy um, as their life moves forward. Yeah, and up until this moment, up until the 28th of November, um, it, uh, criminal sanctions apply to the situation of assisted dying. And I'm just wondering, there's a legal side and a medical side, and how do you feel that your colleagues within the medical profession feel about voluntary assisted dying? Well, I think most doctors have been helping people to die in a secondary way. Um, Can you explain that? Well, people who've got an intractable illness and have symptoms that aren't able to be controlled with palliative care now, I don't know what proportion of people that is that palliative care physicians would say that most people, uh, their problems are solved by palliative care. But in my experience, there's a small number for whom that's not possible, like pancreatic cancer or prostate cancer with bony secondaries and so on. And palliative care can, can be quite patchy in terms of yeah, access certainly. as well. So I think all doctors have been using analgesics, opiate analgesics, to help the quality of life of these people, and as a secondary intention, know that they've been uh, facilitating or accelerating their death. And that's been really legally accepted, I think. Um, so as long as your intention is not to kill somebody prematurely, mm. but if you're helping them medically and the secondary intention of that is that their life will be shortened, that's I don't think that's ever been a legal difficulty. But... This has certainly been contentious in the medical profession, and I know myself I had a long time coming around to this. I always thought it was something that ought to be there, but I didn't think that it was something that doctors should be part of because I thought then that changed the way that patients related to us. Mm. Um, but now I've come around to think that, no, that's a... Um, that's a cop-out, really. That's There's that provision in the Hippocratic Oath yeah, yeah. that uh, doctors mm. like to mm. refer to when conversations about these issues come up. But to be pushing that on to somebody else, knowing that you're going to be using it, I, I don't think is um, a courageous thing to do. So I've come around to the belief now that um, this is an imp a significant part of our medical armamentarium and we should use it as appropriate. Right. And, and we are in the Hunter and um, we have been preparing for this legislation for some time because it was actually passed by the New South Wales Parliament 18 months ago. There is um, There have been things going on in the Hunter, establishment of a new unit. I understand you've done some training to provide the assistance to those who need it. Um, can you tell us what's involved in the training that well, you've done? We had to do online training to start with do the online training and read the manual. Um, and then having done that and satisfied that requirement, you could either do a further online course, which was many hours, or do a face-to-face -face, um, training day, which was a full day followed by an assessment. And I did both of those. But in the end, I decided not to proceed to become one of these doctors because Hunter New England Health has set up what seems to be an excellent unit mm -hmm. uh, to deal with it, headed by a um, cancer surgeon mm -hmm. and ethicist yes. and lawyer. Yes, quite <laughs> well known in all of those fields uh, in The Hunter. Dr Charles Douglas and um, supported by a lot of 
people who are very experienced in end-of-life care. And I, my own life is busy enough without wanting to add something unnecessary because I was really only doing it thinking that the number of it doctors... may not be enough of you. There wouldn't be enough. But there does seem to be enough. If there turns out not to be enough, maybe I'll change my mind. Yes, but you have done what it, what is required yeah. Yeah. in order to be one of those doctors if yeah. that um, turns out to be... Necessary here. Um, so could you tell us about the criteria for accessing the uh, VAD laws? How does somebody show that they – how does somebody get in and be able to use the, this new legislation? All right. You, you have to have a close affiliation with New South Wales, either be an Australian resident who lives in New South Wales or somebody who's lived here for a year or who has some close medical connection that means you um, – are accepted as someone who has uh, a claim on New South Wales. You need to be over 18 and you need to have an illness that will likely end your life within six months or if it's a neurodegenerative illness, within 12 months. You need to have the capacity to make a the decision to want to proceed with voluntary assisted dying and following your assessments, if you're accepted, you need to have the capacity at the end to uh, make a final decision that you will proceed to accept the medications. And you need to have done all this without any duress. The assessors need to be uh, happy that this has been a free decision that you've made without any duress. And and that the issue of duress is one that I would imagine a lot of people in the lead up to this, the passing of this legislation and since it was passed continue to grapple with. So in your view, how do you deal with issues around duress? Do you have any thoughts around this? Well, I think that most, there are three sorts of doctors involved in this. There's the coordinating doctor who actually initiates the process that the person goes to, who I assume in most cases will be their GP or AGP. A GP closely attached to their patient's own GP Then you have to go before two um, consulting doctors who make an assessment, see who's suitable, and then finally there's an administering doctor, which again might be your GP, or you can administer the medication yourself, which is a difference from other jurisdictions. So you've got those two choices. So I would think that most GPs would know whether there was an issue of duress, and um, if necessary, they would know who to call upon to tease out that question. So as a geriatrician, that might be the sort of thing that I might be called upon to look at. Uh, A, I might be called upon to test a person's capacity, but I think most GPs could do that very well themselves. Or I might be called upon to assess duress, which is, is what I frequently do already. Around, In what context do you deal with duress? Around other legal issues like wills, power of attorney. Potential elder abuse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you feel that there are issues around this, there's um, a, an assisted dying, a voluntary assisted dying board. How do you see the role of that board okay. operating? There are five members on the board. It's headed by a lawyer that chairs the board. Two of the other members are lawyers. Only one of them is a doctor and one's a dentist. So that's what makes up the board. The role of the board is to oversee the Act, to make sure the Act is um, adhered to. But they also have the final decision as to whether accept someone 
from the uh, assessments of the consulting um, physicians to accept them for voluntary assisted dying and then to make the decision that the um, pharmaceutical branch at North Shore should administer the medications to the uh, doctor or to the directly to the patient. And can we learn anything from the legislative schemes that have been implemented around the country about the way in which the voluntary assisted boards will operate? Because I, as I understand it, it has been um, one of the reasons that there was a, a push to have this prolonged introduction period was because they wanted to see how it was operating in, for example, Victoria. Do you think that we will be able to benefit for being the last people to introduce the legislation and see how it works? Look, I'm sure we will be. And I think there's a lot of people feel that this New South Wales legislation is the best in the country, that has signed out a few of the loopholes that exist in the other states. I must say I'm not familiar with the legislation in, in the other states, but uh, I think overall that most states have been fairly happy with the way it's gone, um, that the uptake has been reasonable but not enormous. They haven't been swamped. Um, so I think most people uh, feel that it's been you know, a useful thing in medical care. Yeah, I, I know in Victoria there are 68, I think, legislative safeguards that have to be that are that are in the legislation, and we don't have that restrictive approach. And it, mm. as you say, um, I, and I, I'm interested to hear you describe our legislation as the best in the country. Um, we're criticised in many ways for being the last kid on the block to introduce important social legislation, and there are other examples. But you know, we can also learn from what's happened. So families, doctors, patients, how do you see this playing out and um, how do you feel that those involved in the care of a person who is on, all the, on the face of it eligible to access the legislation um, operating? What, what sort of potential issues do you see within families who may not... Um, necessarily agree with the decision that has been made by a person wanting to access the legislation and the, the VAD? I think it's not that much different from all other decisions that we make, whether it's um, uh, advanced care plans or whether it's um, legal issues like wills, power of attorney, enduring guardian, uh, whether someone should go into an aged care facility or remain at home. Um, good medical practice means that you've got to have a family conference. Mm. And that family conference needs to involve everybody. Mm. And uh, there are a lot of dysfunctional families, as we know, and there will be a lot of people who will come out of the woodwork at the last minute. And unfortunately, that's just good medical practice. And uh, if you're involved in people at the end of life, you have to have a great deal of patience and you have to be prepared to have f multiple family conferences. Even if you feel you've solved the issue, someone will come from Queensland and say, you know, I've never been consulted about this and you have to have, sit down and do it again. Because one of the things I feel strongly about dying is that a good death is not necessarily the one that the patient wanted. It's the one that leaves behind a united family. So a good death adhering to the patient's wishes that leaves behind a divided family where half never speak to each other again, I don't see that as a good death. Mm. And it's, it's avoidable. It's mm. avoidable by good 
by family conferencing and by good medical social practice. I imagine you've been involved in a lot of conversations around this, mm. uh, about the end of life. Um, you've been a geriatrician since, um, you know, for some decades, and this isn't new to you, and um, and you seem to have a very calm approach to what we see being introduced in New South Wales. So it's not a, a huge quantum shift as far as you can, as far as you're concerned. It's something that you've been involved in um, these conversations, difficult conversations, emotional conversations with family members about how best to construct a good death. No, I think it is a quantum shift. I mean, we've never had this sort of conversation before of a, a patient deciding to prematurely terminate their life. So it's it's something that's quite new. But I think the principles are probably fairly similar to things that um, uh, we practiced before. The big gap in it all, of course, is dementia. Yes, I'm pleased that we was going to get into that because that is the big but, isn't it, in VAD, the, the big chunk of people at the end of their life who won't be able to access because they've lost capacity. That's right. And it's the probably the main cause of the loss of dignity um, and family discomfort uh, in older age. And it's so I understand why it's well, not included early on in the legislation, um, but I do have my own ideas about how it could be later on. It's probably premature to think about it now. Um, you don't want to tell us a little bit about what you have in mind? We all know people whose parents died of dementia who are terrified of getting dementia themselves and and then siblings of them get dementia and they're even more frightened. And they have a strong concept of the dignity of their life and a strong wish not to proceed to a stage where, which is undignified as far as they're concerned. Um, the reason it's not included is that you need within 12 months of a terminal neurodegenerative disease to make the decision. Of course, if you're within 12 months of the end of your dementia, you've lost capacity. And then you need to have the capacity right at the end to confirm it. And of course, obviously, that's not the case. But it doesn't seem impossible to me that someone couldn't set very objective criteria at the start. When they knew they were in the early phase of dementia, we, we know that that can go on for some years where you're still driving, you're still managing your money, you're still living a normal life, but you know that you've got an early dementia and it's going to progress. Um, and I don't see it's beyond the bounds of possibility that you could set objective criteria um, and then say, well, when those criteria cut in, they're very objective, not subjective, not something that the family could uh, manipulate, very objective criteria that medical people could measure, that that would be the time at which you would like your life to end. So there's the early stage of the dementia process, but what about um, do you foresee that somebody could build it into an advanced care directive prior to developing any symptoms or signs of dementia? Yes, that's quite a contentious issue. Um, I'm not a huge supporter of advanced care directives for people whose health is reasonable. I mean, 
you know. So you're not in favour of a lot of lawyers. I know that um, it is a bit bit of an area that um, certain lawyers who work in the estate planning area say that not only should you have a will and an enduring guardian and a um, an enduring power of attorney, but you should have an advanced care directive. And I know that only something like 10% of Australians, if that, would have an advanced care directive or a living will, sometimes they're, they're called, but you're not in favour. No, I don't think they're useful. You can make some general comments about the things that you value in your life and put that into your advanced care directive, but I don't think that gives it ter- terribly much meaning. I don't see them being useful until the trajectory of your illness is clear. Mm-hmm. So once you've gone into a nursing home, you know why you're there, what's likely to happen, you've got a pretty good idea of the prognosis and how things are going to pan out, that's when you do an advanced care directive. Um, I don't see it as someone who is cognitively well and healthy but fears dementia because I don't think they know um, really what that trajectory of illness is going to look like. Mm. Okay. Well, I'd be interested in seeing how that plays out. I imagine that it could be something that could be thought about in the context of advanced care directives, but let's wait and see. Can we move just to um, how things are in uh, regional, rural and remote areas of New South Wales? Uh, We've heard a lot over the last two years about how uh, people living outside the metropolitan areas uh, don't have the healthcare options that those in the cities have and even those outside Sydney. So how do you feel that the VAD will impact on those who live outside of the cities of uh, New South Wales, Sydney, Newcastle? We've got a big VAD centre, as you've told us. What about people out in Central West and and, and very remote areas of the of the state? Well, I don't think there'll be doctors on the ground uh, in every area, that's for sure. Telehealth, is that is that going to be part you, of this new scheme? You, you can discuss some parts of it by telehealth, but there are other parts of it that you legally can't. Mm. So, for example, you can't discuss the drugs, the medications or the means of dying um, over the phone or by telehealth. So there are some parts that can be done by telehealth, but other parts that are going to have to be done by face-to-face um, assessment. Now, whether that means that the person has to be brought down to the doctor or the doctor's got to go to the person. Now, I know that um, New South Wales Health have given this a lot of thought, and I assume that the unit at John Hunter Hospital has also given a lot of thought because, of course, we look after right up to the New South... A very big catchment area. ...the Queensland border. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's going to be a few doctors doing a lot of travelling at considerable cost, one would think. Yeah. John... What about those who have always expressed the the very strong wish about dying at home? Uh, A lot of people express that that's very important to them. How do you see that working with voluntary assisted dying? Is that something that can be incorporated within the scheme that's being introduced? Oh, I think easily. And uh, you can uh, die and use this method anywhere you wish. So you can use it in a nursing home, you can use it in a hospital, you can use it at home. A lot of people, I think, will choose to use it at home because they'll want their family to be around them. This concept of the good death. Yes, and and have a little party and and say goodbye to everybody. And the other uh, choice they have is to have it administered by someone, like a doctor or a nurse, um, or to administer themselves. Now, you can 
either administer it orally or intravenously. Um, someone else can uh, assist you with this, um, but uh, there are criteria that you have to do a certain amount yourself so that it's very clear that this is your decision. But, you know, it will be very attractive to a lot of people to do this at home. Yeah, well, thank you for explaining that. I think that it does make a lot of sense for uh, people wanting to go down this path uh, and um, with the support of their um, the health professionals that they consult with and their families um, to be in a in that home environment. So that, that does make sense. Uh, I'll be very interested in being a witness to how this new legislation mm. Uh, mm. works in practice and um, where we have in the Hunter a... Um, quite a large unit, it would seem. Thank you so much, Dr. John Ward, for giving your time today. I know it's very precious. Uh, you're very busy. And, um, and congratulations again on your very significant recognition recently. Thank you, Catherine. I hope you got a lot out of this episode of Law Matters. I'm Catherine Henry, and at Catherine Henry Lawyers, we work on end-of-life legal issues, whether that's from thinking about advanced care directives to voluntary-assisted dying. On another note, this is the final episode for 2023. We'll be back in 2024 with more interesting and insightful topics. I hope you and your family have a safe and happy holiday period, and I wish you all the best. This podcast was produced by Pod and Pen Productions.